I want to speak to you this morning on the hope of the gospel. What is it? If out of the blue someone were to stop you in your tracks and put you on the spot for an answer, how would you describe the hope of the gospel? I'm hoping that by the end of this service you'll be confident to answer that question. But firstly, the passage opens with the word therefore. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By now, most of us would know that whenever a passage in the Bible starts with the word therefore, you are wise to ask yourself, what is that word therefore? Chapter 5 builds on the foundation of the arguments that are developed in the previous chapters, and particularly chapter 4, where Paul explains that the key to righteousness before God in every age has always been faith. Paul uses the example of the faith of Abraham to explain this in chapter 4, verses 21 to 24. And Paul says Abraham was fully persuaded that God had power to make him in his case, the father of many nations, despite the fact that he was very old and Sarah was barren. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Whereas God promised Abraham fatherhood, he promised Noah a flood. Imagine spending decades building a huge boat and enduring the scorn of all comers because God had promised a flood. The promise was tailored, but faith that God would do what he said was all they had to go on. At Calvary, the focus of God's promise became the same for all people from then on. Jesus' death at Calvary changed the focus of God's promise to faith in Jesus as our substitute. But it was always faith in God's promises that brought about a declaration of righteousness before God all the way back to Adam. Our hope of eternity now rests in God's promise to do something we are not of ourselves able to do, but something God is willing to do for us. Our part is to hold on to that promise with a faith as strong as Abraham's. Right at the end of chapter 4, Paul writes that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. What does that mean? For us to be released from the bondage of sin, it was necessary for payment to be made. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Someone had to pay that price and if not we ourselves... It had to be someone who didn't have a sin debt himself. 
But was it necessary for Jesus to be raised back to life in order that we would have our sins forgiven? And Paul explains that that was not necessary. But God raised Jesus from the dead that we might know that he has power over death. And we can be justified in our confidence that God is good for the promises he has made regarding eternity. That is what the word therefore is drawing our attention to. And with that in mind, we're ready to tackle what we've got to deal with this morning. To do that, we'll be looking at the security of the salvation we have obtained, confidence to stand against the challenges that will come, and that we are saved to serve and share the gospel with others. So let's consider the security of the salvation we have obtained. Have you, as a believer, ever had doubts about your position before God? I doubt that there is anyone who hasn't. How can we be sure that our hope in salvation being complete doesn't depend on something that we do? How is it that my sin today or into the future does not jeopardise the salvation I obtained yesterday? Bad things still happen to me. Difficulties with work or relationships or sickness or disease. The frailty of old age or bullying online. How can I be sure the storms I encounter in life are not an indication that God is unhappy with me? Well, chapter 5 is the defence of salvation by faith alone. And it wouldn't be there if we needed to earn or maintain our way to heaven. It is a counter to the argument that it is all just too easy and there has to be more to it. There has to be something I have to do. It's the natural Human default thinking. There is salvation. I want it. What do I have to do to get it? What do I have to do to keep God happy with me? No, 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 no. You don't have to do anything. It's already been done. Just believe that it has already been done for you and you are saved. And there is a simple way to be sure that we don't need to do anything to either earn our salvation or to maintain it. Our works were the problem. They were the thing that caused us to fall short of the glory of God in the first place, Romans 3.23. And that being the case, How would our works show us in a better light before God now that the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from the consequences of those works? And there is apparently a linguistic twist in the text that doesn't directly translate to English. When in our translation, in verse 1, it says we are justified by faith alone, the Greek verb tense is known as arist. And what that means is that it's an action that's taken in an instant, but the consequences continue indefinitely. 
we are justified in a moment. And that justification continues eternally. Another way to think about it is that if we were able to play a part in our salvation, then God would have to share his glory with us. And that will emphatically not happen. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. We can be absolutely certain that if we believe in Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on Calvary's cross as being full payment for our sin debt, we are saved and that won't change. And that's a good thing. Because we will need confidence to stand against the challenges that will come. Jesus never promised a life free of pain, free of conflict, free of the challenges that life throws up. The curse that Adam brought on humanity is still the daily reality of sinners and saints alike, despite the relationships Christians have with Jesus Christ. We are called to live out our lives in the world, although we are no longer of the world as followers of Jesus. That is, we are called to live out our lives as a display of how the Holy Spirit dwelling in us has changed how we react to life's challenges. It's true that the Holy Spirit indwells our lives and there is a truth to the fact that he will bring about change that we are not always consciously aware of, but it is also true that we need to be willing participants in that change process. And if it is our purpose since becoming Christians to win others to the kingdom of God, then I believe it is imperative that we waste no time in taking our stand for the one who gave his all for us. Christianity is a vocation. It is not a mark of achievement. John Piper, an American Baptist preacher, puts it this way. There are three types of Christians. Those that are going, those that are sending, and those that are disobeying. If you are a Christian, you are supposed to be involved in mission. During the Vietnam conflict, a Christian conscript of my acquaintance wondered how he would broach the subject of his faith with his fellow soldiers. He decided that he would live out his life as much as he could normally, as was his normal practice just before lights out, but now in an army barracks setting, he got down on his knees and went to the Lord in prayer. He figured that from there, there would be no hiding his faith and his witness would only grow stronger. I think he might have been right. It's a template that I have used in my life. Don't leave yourself open to the possibility of denying Christ. At the first opportunity, nail your colours to the mast for all to see. It may be said that it's embarrassing to speak about our faith, but it only gets harder 
when you put it off. And anyway, what is our embarrassment compared to what Christ did for us? Our faith does not turn on our emotions or our feelings. It needs to be made of sterner stuff. If it's a faith that will shield us from the adversities to come. Peter Hitchens wrote an article for the Mail on Sunday about Arno Beltram. Shortly before his death, it's said that Arno embraced Christianity. That's a point a very secular French state was not keen to air publicly. But they have been more than a little enthusiastic to hail Arno as a hero of the French Republic. Why so? On the 23rd of March 2018, a terrorist gunman took, um, took hostages in a French supermarket after shooting two people dead. The gunman was talked out of keeping all but one hostage. So in order to secure her freedom, Arno, a policeman, offered to swap places with her. As a consequence, Arno Beltram was himself fatally wounded and later died. Peter Hitchens wrote of this event, I believe that he knew as he did so that this might well cost him his life. And that by stepping forward, he faced the strong possibility of a horrible and lonely death. Nobody ordered him or asked him to do it. It would have been perfectly normal and acceptable for the police to have surrounded the mad killer and wait for him to give in or kill himself with the strong possibility that he would kill his hostage. Arno Beltram went miles further than was re he was required to by the normal rules of life or even the normal rules of duty and bravery. And Hitchens went on to say, I think that Lieutenant Colonel Beltram did what he did because of the specifically Christian saying, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But Paul, in this message from the Romans, goes on to explain how even a sacrifice as great as that of Arno Beltram is paled by the significance of what Jesus did for us. He writes in verse 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. I'm grateful to Steve Armstrong from Verse by Verse Ministries for the following illustration of the logic of what God did for us. Steve writes, imagine two soldiers are at war on opposing sides and suddenly one of the soldiers attacks, acts at great personal risk to save the life of his enemy. The one soldier proved his love for the other by risking his life for his enemy. And after the war is over, the two men decide to meet in a local cafe. When they meet, they strike up a friendship made possible by that noble act. But then, imagine that as they leave the table, the soldier who had been saved turns to his rescuer and says, I'm sorry but we can't meet again. 
And when his friend asks why, the soldier says, I just can't trust you. So I'm afraid that you'll pull a gun and shoot me when I least expect it. And the other soldier is shocked and asks, if I was willing to rescue you when you were my enemy, why would I kill you now that you're my friend? In verse 10, Paul asks, if while we were doing everything wrong, God reconciled us to himself by Christ's death, how much more shall we be saved by his life? Now, this is a logical argument and a source of great confidence for any Christian burdened by, the worries, by worries about sin and security. How can we worry about the certainty of God's promises to us when he put his son to death for us? If you had any reason to think the plan wasn't going to work, then how do you explain Christ's death? We are saved to serve others and share the gospel. Paul explains in Romans 5.2 about the access we have gained to the Father by the faith in which we now stand. There is nothing there about sitting, let alone cowering. We now stand in our faith. We are confident of God's grace to overlook our sins on the basis that Jesus has paid our debt on our behalf and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And Paul goes on, not only so... But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's a picture of activity. A picture of purpose as believers contend for the truth with neighbours and friends, out of concern for their eternal destiny. It's a picture of hardship and suffering that doesn't happen when you go with the flow. Paul encourages the Roman believers to willingly accept hardships for Jesus' sake, that all might have the opportunity to hear, and that some, hopefully all, would believe. My wife is fond of a story of a believer who, before becoming a Christian, saw the only point of difference between himself and Christians being that before they ate, Christians would stop and talk to the vegetables. If only all Christians did even that. When we pray, do we do so with the right attitude? Do we pray to the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth? Or do we pray into the abyss as an expression of futility and impotence? In our Old Testament reading, Crown Prince Jonathan had confidence 
to take on the Philistines if the Lord was with him. And he set the terms on how he could know that. If you know the story, Jonathan's father, King Saul, and Israel's army, well, what was left of Israel's army, were lying under a pomegranate tree in fear of their lives. It's a great picture, isn't it? An army lying down. The army and its king barely had confidence in the strength of their own might and were opposed by a vastly more numerous foe. God blessed Jonathan's confidence in Israel's God. And 1 Samuel 14.23 records that as a result, the Lord rescued Israel that day. All it takes, one God-fearing prince. In the letter to the Romans, Paul was addressing what was at the time a relatively small group of Christians in Rome, but it would grow. It would grow in number. It would grow in the face of adversity as it took its stand. It would grow in the face of lions without taking a backward step. Through its sacrifice, the church of Jesus Christ overcame the power of the Roman Empire and turned the course of history. Today, the fastest growing church in the world is said to be the underground church in China at approximately 163 million believers. Taking a stand for Jesus in China is a serious undertaking. You know the preciousness of the gift that has been given you. You know it's worth all the beatings and imprisonment you might have to endure. You know about the horrors of the gulags. You need to weigh up whether your faith is worth the pain. As Christians, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. In the West, our affluence is blinding us to that fact. It is estimated that there are currently 2.8 billion people in the world who have never heard of Jesus once. If someone doesn't tell them, they will pass through this life without ever having heard of the hope of the gospel. We need to take a stand, no matter what the cost. What is the hope of the gospel The hope of the gospel is the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice to save all who would believe on his name. It is a great message of hope to take to our families, our friends and the world at large. Are we ready to take a stand for Jesus Christ, the one who gave his all for us? Let's pray. Our Father God, open our eyes to the seriousness of the battle we are in, to the certainty that only those whose names are written in the book of life will escape the consequences of your righteous judgment. Fill us with concern for the eternal destiny of our friends and neighbours who don't know you yet. Help us to take a stand and strive for the truth with all who do not know you. Help us to see 
that what you require is extraordinary faith as opposed to extraordinary courage. Give us confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ that we might each take a stand for the faith we claim. We pray in Jesus' powerful name.